Of the car emancipation rides majestic through our nation, bearing on its trains a story, liberty, a nation's glory. Roll it along, roll it along, roll it along through the nation, freedom's car emancipation, roll it along. cannot injure to any extent the stockholders. They are men of wealth, of large capital, and consequently beyond the powers of fortune or even the shafts of malice. But by injuring the credit of the bank, you will depreciate the value of its paper in the hands of the honest and unsuspecting farmer and mechanic, and that is all you can do. But suppose that you could affect your whole purpose. Suppose you could wipe out the bank from existence, which is the grand ultimatum of the project. What would be the consequences? Why, sir, we should spend several thousand dollars of the public treasury on the operation, annihilate the currency of the state, render valueless in the hands of our people that reward of their former labors. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Now, in this episode, we will be continuing our look at some American political writing with an extended series on the works and speeches and writings of, of Abraham Lincoln. Um, now, we looked at Tocqueville, and he, he, of course, wrote a book, and Jefferson wrote a book, his notes from the state of Virginia, and, and that kind of gave us some, some pillars to build our analysis around when we looked at those, those, those figures. Lincoln didn't do that, of course. Lincoln never wrote a book. What Really, what we have is his, a lot of his speeches um, and his letters. That's the vast majority of what's in this, this collection. It's a two-volume collection. Um, put out by the Library of America pretty early in the run. Um, as with the Jefferson book, these are, I think, 45, and I, and I think the second volume came out right after it is 46. So. so that would be in the first four or five years of the Library of America's run. Um, the first volume uh, covers 1832 to 1858, and the second volume then, then covers the, the, the rest, the presidency mostly, the, the you know, a couple years before that, but mostly it deals with his, his presidency. So we're going to take a, a number of episodes, kind of working our way through these works, kind of um, year by year um, and and kind of event by event. Obviously, we're going to slow down a lot. It's going to start out at a, at a quick pace until we get to the late 1850s and then the vast majority of this, of the writings that we're going to look at were written between, you know, 50 you know, 56 and, and 65, of course, when, when Lincoln was, was assassinated. Now that opening quote I left you with was from uh, a speech he gave, one of his first speeches, I think. I think it may have been his first major political speech, which he gave in 1837 on the state bank. And, um, Notice the, the class language there. I think it, it's kind of striking, and you do see elements of that throughout um, you know, Lincoln's career. And I, I think it's something we can't forget about him is, is really to what degree the Republican Party um, during Lincoln's time really was presenting himself as, as you know, kind of a, a, a working man's party almost. And, and it was influenced heavily by like yeah, the German leftists who left, you know, who left Europe in 1840 after those revolutions and things like that. There's actually been some increasingly interesting scholarship exploring the, even the relationship between like Lincoln and, and people like Karl Marx, who, who shared letters during the Civil War. Marx was very, very interested in 
what was going on in America during the Civil War and Lincoln's presidency. So we should kind of keep our eyes open for this kind of class class language. The, the overall tone of the speech, though, is that of, of a Whig, and, and Lincoln's introduction into politics is through the politics of the Whig Party. So by the time he got into politics, America had already kind of gone through that transition Tocqueville talked about of, of dem political democracy, right? It's, it's something that Tocqueville actually didn't say too much about is kind of how American founders, U.S. founders were kind of trying for a more classical republicanism. And then this kind of got washed away by the 1820s and 30s with a more democratic politics. But, um, you know, Lincoln's rise early on was through through the Whig Party. And his and we're going to talk about what the Whig Party is in, in this episode. Um, so anyway, this episode, I will I'll cover um, about 100 pages, as always, of, of the writings of Abraham Lincoln, which will take us to because this is organized chronologically, this collection. Um, as we might expect, this will take us to 1844. So obviously we're covering a lot of a lot of time there. Um, so this is period is really going to be the period of looking at, at Lincoln as a Whig politician, uh, local Whig politician, not yet national. We'll get to his his introduction into national politics a little bit later in the next episode and the follow up episode. Um, but here's a he's a Whig politician at the state level in in Illinois. Uh, and he's a frontier lawyer for much of this period. So while he's building his political career, he's also building his career as a lawyer. And these actually over, overlap. You know, there's, he's serving as a lawyer while he's also in, even in the House of Representatives. Um, uh, he's serving as electors for different Whig presidential candidates at the same time he's doing his lawyering. Um, so the specific documents here run from 1832 to 1844, mostly 1837, though, to 1844. There's just a handful of early, early documents. Um, so as for Lincoln's early life, uh, you probably know some of this already, um, you know, at least, you know, he's the born of law cabin stuff uh, in Kentucky, uh, born to a poor family in Kentucky. Uh, he had roots in, in Kentucky and in Indiana and, and most importantly in Illinois. And, and he was able to, to kind of harness all of these in his presidential campaign and in his political career. Uh, it begins in 1832. His political career begins in 1832 when he runs for the House of, of of the Illinois state legislature. And he, he fails in that, but he's going to go back and, and serve several terms in the Illinois state legislature in starting in 1837. Uh, so he was born in 1804 in Kentucky. He's mostly self-educated. Uh, in his youth, he worked um, on, a, on a flatboat and he had other various odd jobs. Uh, he served in the Black Hawk War in 1830 I think I wrote that down right in 1830. The Black Hawk War was one of a series of Indian wars in the in the Midwest. Of course, the earliest of these goes back to like the Shawnee, the Shawnee Wars um, right after the, in the 1790s. But as people started to move farther to the West into Wisconsin and Illinois in, in, in the 1820s and, and especially the 1830s, Wisconsin becomes a state in 1848 um, that with this settlement, you have conflict with the Indians who live there, and that's um, the the Winnebago. There's a Winnebago uprising and, and a war with them. There's the, the the war with the Fox and the Sauk, and the Black Hawk War, of course, is part of that. And the end result of this is the removal of of these Indian people to to Oklahoma, I think, or maybe somewhere else to the west. So we often think of Indian removal as something affecting like the Cherokee and the Creek and those those in the south in Georgia and Alabama, but it also was something that shaped Indians in the in the Midwest. 
Um, I actually did a little research as a graduate student on uh, the lead mining Indians in the, in the Mississippi Valley and how as white people came in, they pushed the Indians out of there and it, it kind of feeds into the Winnebago War um, in a way. So he did serve, he does have military service in, in that war. Uh, he makes his first political speech in 1830, and it's it's basically on transportation. Uh, this was uh, he worked, he did odd jobs after this. Um, in now we don't I don't have this speech for the one in 1830 that he did on transportation. I have his first kind of campaign speech from 1832, which I'll talk about in a bit. But he, it apparently was on tech, transportation. So he's a classical Whig. And, and again, I'll get back to that. But the Whigs, one of the big policy promoted by the Whigs in this period was internal improvements, right? So he's interested in internal transportation and roads and canals and that kind of stuff, investing in that, those types of things. Um, so he finally runs for office in 1832, losing. He actually came in eighth place. It was like a ranked voting system where like the top seven people got into the state legislature from that county. And he was like, I think he was, he just missed it by one or something. He was in eighth place. Um, and that's our first really document in this collection. Lincoln was 30, 23 years old, 23 years old in 1832. And he gave this speech just to the people of Sagamo County, which was his... Um, basically a campaign speech as he's running for the, the state legislature. And there's a few things to say about this document is he, of course, promotes um, internal improvements and, and like good banking systems and things for the, for the state. He also promotes investment in education. He writes, he said, I gotta be careful how I read this because a lot of these are speeches. Um, he said, every man may receive at least a moderate education and thereby be enabled to read the histories of his own in other countries by which he may duly appreciate the value of our free institutions appears to be the object of vital importance. Even on this account alone, to say nothing of the advantages and satisfaction to be derived from all being able to read the scripture and other works, both of a religious and moral nature for themselves. For my part, I desire to see a time when education and by its means morality, sobriety, enterprise, and industry shall become much more general than at present. So, yeah, he's basically calling here for some sort of mass education, although he doesn't specify any policies. He's just a, just a young politician. But I also noticed that he, he's really humble in this, and he really presents himself as, as kind of a local person, a man of the people kind of thing, a common background with, uh, with the voters. Now, and that's all we have. That's all our, our editor here um, includes. Our editor, by the way, is... Don Fehrenbacher was the editor of, the, of this um, collection. Um, then we don't hear, we don't get another document till 1836, um, when he's again running for public office. So what happened in his life between his failed election bid in 1832 and 1836? Well, he started a store and it, it failed not long after. There's actually a couple um, efforts at this. Uh, he continues education um, throughout this period, and he eventually becomes a postmaster for a short period of time. So he starts to enter into weak politics more directly uh, through, through public service. Um, finally, he's elected in 1834 to the House, to the legislature, not the House of Representatives in, con in Congress, but the, the Illinois State Legislature as a Whig. Um, and he's very, fairly active as a Whig. So yeah, let, let's, let's talk about these Whigs. Um, you know, of course, if you know from like my Jefferson series, by the time Jefferson was president, the Federalist 
faction had been gone. So that first party system kind of ended with the dominance of the Democratic Republican Party. And they would uh, see three presidents, uh, basically four, actually, if you include John Quincy Adams, who I don't think he didn't run as a Federalist. He ran as a, I think, as a Democratic Republican as well. So it was, it was Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and then Adams, right? Um, and then after that, you have the rise of Andrew Jackson and the Democratic Party, which um, kind of is an outshoot of that. Now, the Whig Party then kind of takes on some of the issues that the Federalist Party embraced, although it, it, it didn't have that kind of monarchical, aristocratic taint that, that offended Jefferson so much. It did, was presenting itself more as a working man's party, but it was more interested in issues of internal improvements, uh, high tariffs, um, that kind of thing, industry, developing industry. So this was called, this was developed, this idea, this kind of program of the Whig Party was developed by Henry Clay. And this was called the American System. And again, it was focused on industry, industrial development, kind of the Hamiltonian vision and internal improvements. You know, all the, the railways and the, the roads and, and investing in that kind of stuff. Um, there was a split in the Whig Party between the, the Southern Whigs and the what we call like the Conscience Whigs, or the kind of the an, more anti-slavery, the Free Soil Whigs. And that's that's going to be a tension in the Whig Party. Is it's trying to be a national party. It's trying to get votes from all over the country, and it can't then be a explicitly anti-slavery party. It has to kind of manage those factions in it. But there are that, that tension will eventually lead to the breakup of the Whig Party and the formation of the Republican Party in the later 1850s. Um, but Lincoln's a pretty conventional Whig throughout this, this, this period. Uh, you know, he defends things like the National Bank, for instance, as we saw in that opening quote I gave you. Um, so um, originally elected in 1834, re-elected in 1836, and that's the same year he gets his law license. So again, we see he actually, political career begins before his legal career. It's not like many politicians who they're lawyers and then they get into politics. He, he was a politician before he went into law. Um, and it's in that same year, 1836, that he starts to court Mary Owens, which is the first of his efforts to, to court. Um, and we actually have a letter that he wrote to, to Mary Owens. And it's actually, it's not romantic. It's actually pretty banal. I, I, I can maybe understand why Mary Owens decided not to marry Abraham Lincoln because the letters we have, we just have a couple of them here, but they're, they're all about him and they're all about his work. Um, I don't know. It's they're they're not the most flat, uh, flattering and, and 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 sweet letters. So if you're looking for that, you're not going to get that in in at least not in his his early early letters. At least not in this collection. They maybe they exist. I I, I don't see them. Um, th this there is of course a lot to say about Lincoln's melancholy, uh, his mental health, and there's been a lot of speculation about it. And there are periods in his youth or his young adulthood in which he he was depressed, and some of it had to do with his, his early failures in courtship. You know, he fails his first effort to court this woman, Mary Owens, and then he almost, like, there was a time that Mary Todd broke the engagement with him. So there's, there's depression. There's a lot of speculation about his, you know, just his psychology and, and a lot of aspects. I don't want to get into that too much unless it's really in my face, but there it is. Um, so, yeah, we got a few documents from 36, um, mostly just little letters and things. The first major document in this collection, I would say, is his speech on the Illinois legislature on the state bank. Uh, this was given while he was in um, the legislature. 
And so it is his his defense of the state bank. It's not a defense of the national bank, right? He's defending the state bank system. And there's going to be another document. Um, I think it's actually we'll, we'll look at in this collection on the sub-treasury system, which was like a kind of the democratic alternative to the Illinois State Bank, which was asking, you know, kind of, you know, Lincoln says this is just a different way of saying a bank. You're just trying to not call the bank. It's, it's an interesting speech. Um, this one, though, has some really fascinating language. You know, in that he's a it's a traditional Whiggish defense of the state bank, right? Banks they they provide a stable currency, they help uh, establish a you know funding for different projects. They're constitutional because they do provide for the general um, welfare. But what he sort of sort of says here is he makes an argument kind of in a subtext, and I, it was in that quote from the beginning. That's that's where this is from. You know that kind of. It's better that the banking system was under some kind of public control for the working people, right? Because these are sort of parasitical classes. He seems to be aware of that. And it's, you know, it's, it's the duty of governance then to kind of control it and to manage it in a way. And, you know, that's part of what democracy is. So he's, I don't want to go too far. I don't want to stretch what Lincoln was really meaning here. But you can kind of see threads of maybe arguing for through a state bank system, you have somewhat more of a democratic control over over the banking system, right? And this is before you had a lot of regulations and things, right? Before um, the, the New Deal. But listen to this, what he says in the speech. No one can doubt that the examination proposed by this resolution must cost the state some ten or $12,000. And all this to settle a question in which the people have no interest, about which they care nothing. These capitalists generally act harmoniously and in concert to fleece the people. And now have they got into a quarrel with themselves, we are called upon to appropriate the people's money to settle the quarrel, end quote. What he's talking about here is, is basically bailing out the banks and, and how the people of Illinois had to do it. And then a state bank would somehow um, alleviate that, that need. And that, that's one of a couple places where he sort of sees the bank as an aspect of, of a broader, really kind of a class war almost. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's active in Whig politics. Um, we got, and he's going to make a lot of these speeches, you know, promoting or, or statements, promoting, uh, in investment in roads. And in fact, I think the very, one of the, there's a letter to the editor earlier he gave where he's just like, I'm going to promote roads. Uh, his first speech talked about the same thing. Um, so that's going to run throughout it. I don't know how much I want to repeat this, this overall point, but, um. You know, if, if it comes up, if I, if I see interesting things, I'll, I'll mention it yeah, in the early part of the series. Well, OK. Now, he has a law partner. Some of these letters are, are shared with our, our correspondences with his law partner, who was a man named John Stewart at the time. So they got together and formed their law office after Lincoln got his, his law license. And also a lot of letters are to his friend Joseph Speed. Joseph Speed was someone who... Um, I think he was from Kentucky. He must have been because jo uh, Joseph Speed owned slaves, and they, they actually converse, have conversations about slavery in these in these letters. Uh, and but they were good friends, and I think I think one of the stores that Lincoln ran they was co ran with with Joseph Speed, and it may have failed too. Um, other things that happened in 1837 was the ending, a formal ending of his courtship to to this this woman Mary Mary S. Owens. 
So um, just looking at the year 1837, in addition to that speech on the state bank, there's at least two or three other documents I want to highlight here as, as kind of interesting. One is a protest he made in the Illinois legislature on the issue of slavery. It's kind of like an anti-anti-abolition um, statement. This would have been by the, I guess, the conscience Whigs within the Illinois state legislature. And this was a short little statement showing opposition to a passage of an anti-abolitionist amendment. So Lincoln's obviously not a, an abolitionist in this part of his career or, or you know, maybe the war. We'll, we'll get to that, you know, when if, if his opinion changed or if there was a kind of a moment where, you know, he was forced to become the great emancipator. I mean, the whole image of the great emancipator is something we got to think about in this series. Uh, of course, I was, you know, I kind of... Um, came out of an environment that was saying, you know, kind of downplaying the great emancipator argument, instead saying, well, what really mattered was the slaves forced the government to move towards abolition. And, and Lincoln just kind of went along with that. And evidence for this, you could look at a lot of what he says about slavery prior to the war. You could look at his soft handling of policies about reconstruction, his attitude towards the radical Republicans during the war, all that kind of suggests a more moderate um, person. So that was kind of pushed into abolition by, um, you know, by circumstances. The other argument, of course, is the great emancipator argument that, that Lincoln really was this visionary leader. It's something we got to think about as we read through these documents, and I hope you read along with me and, and think about that as well and, and let me know what your thoughts are on that. But, you know, this is not an abolitionist, but it is, a, you know, arguing against the kind of the banning of abolitionist ideas in in. in in, in Congress and you know, saying that this is something that should be debated. Um, okay, what else do we got here? We got the courtship documents. We got a couple letters to, to Mary S. Owens. Um, so as I said before, the earlier letter we have to Mary S. Owens is all about him. This letter has a lot about him too, but and then the rest is kind of whiny and mopey and it's not very flattering, uh, to be honest. You know, you might, I don't know if he thought this was like romantic, but it just comes off as so weird and, and, and kind of desperate. Uh, I'll read a bit just because it's kind of fun. Um, you would have to be poor without the means of hiding your poverty. Do you believe you could bear that patiently? Whatever woman may cast her lot with mine, should any ever do so, it is my intention to do all in my power to make her happy and contented. And there's nothing I can imagine that would make me more unhappy than to fail in that effort. I know I should be much happier with you the way I am, provided I saw no signs of discontent in you. What you have said to me may be in jest. Or may, I may have misunderstood. If so, then let it be forgotten. If otherwise, I much wish that you would think seriously before you decide. End quote. Now, he's saying it in, like, you know, politer ways than a disgruntled, you know, suitor might be now on a, on a text message. But he's basically, you know, begging her not to break up with him. Um, and then at the end, he says, you must write me a long, a good long letter after this. I have nothing else to do and thought it might not seem interesting to you after you had written it. It would be a very good deal of company to me in this busy wilderness. So, I don't know. I didn't find these letters that fascinating or, or appealing. It, it, it seems we got a young man here, you know, in his mid-20s, you know, failing at his first courtship and, and, and kind of a, a bit awkward and desperate about that. Okay, one other document from 37 that I want to highlight here is the Address to the Young Man's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois. It's a speech to young people. It's a speech to like a young person's club. And it's really quite nice. It's, it's a speech. It's not partisan, 
really. It's it's kind of the kind of speech he might give to Boy Scouts or something about civil civil you know civics or you know being a good American or something. What he talks about here is how we must build off the legacy of previous generations. That's the main argument he makes, and the duty of of this generation and the upcoming generation to to build off of the foundation left by the founders and to improve it and to perfect it. For instance, near the end of the speech, he says, they were the pillars of the Temple of Liberty, and now that they have crumbled away, the temple must fall unless we, their descendants, supply their places with other pillars, hewn from the solid quarry of sober reason. Passion has helped us, but can do so no more. It will in future be our enemy. Reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason must furnish all the materials for our future support and uh, deference. Let those materials be molded into general intelligence, sound morality, and a, in particular, a reverence for the Constitution and laws. End quote. Um, so that's that kind of the, that's the tone of the whole le- of the whole speech, is is that the people that built this country are dead, and we need to kind of carry carry that on. It's not quite getting to the new birth of freedom stuff. That's that's he's not there yet, obviously, but uh, he is talking about a, a you know each generation has to kind of re, re you know remortar the, the the pillars holding up American democracy. Um, so moving on, 1838, uh, there's not much to say. He's still in the House. He was nominated for the Speaker of the Illinois House, and he, you know, nothing happened. He didn't get the position, and there's no documents, really. I mean, there's a few letters and things, but nothing really notable. For, as for 1839, it's, it's a little bit more of an exciting year. Um, uh, this is when he meets Mary Todd. Of course, he's going to marry uh, Mary Todd in 18... 18- 42. So that courtship will be three years long. Well, he originally meets her in 1839. Um, but he also enters into national politics as an elector for, um, for I guess, it's, is it Harrison? Yeah, I guess it must have been Ben Harrison, 18, 1840 election. You know, there's a, there's a kind of a... a Part of the democracy in this period was kind of the job swapping, right? You know, we think it's kind of notable that maybe he only served one one term in the House of of, of, of representatives. But the way it was is kind of these politicians sort of were were filtered through, and they all got their turn, right? Um, you know, and sometimes after you were a legislature, maybe you'll go into get a, a an appointed office. It was all part of the spoil system, right? And, and Lincoln was actually kind of offended at one point that he didn't get appointed to a, um, a position a, a couple times. Once it's like a he, he thought it was his turn to be, you know, in, in office. Another time it was like a, a, a job. Um, but that was kind of how the spoil system worked in these days. Now, sometimes there wasn't enough jobs for all the people who were kind of clamoring for them. Um, but this was kind of his first entry into national politics was as an elector, right, in the Electoral College uh, for the, you know, the local Whig party. Um, he has a debate with Douglas about banks and about the, the Democratic Party's policy towards banks in Louisiana. And, you know, he debates Douglas a lot. And, of course, his most famous debates are the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But there was actually several debates between Lincoln and Douglas throughout his life, something I, I maybe knew but didn't really think much about you know about banks later on it's going to be about the kansas nebraska act so he's engaged in a conversation with douglas going back before even before the senate run um now his law office his law partner stewart leaves for congress he gets elected to congress and this kind of breaks up that that legal practice and and forces lincoln to find a, a new partner 
Um, the really the highlight of this the documents from this year, I think, is his speech of the sub-treasury, which is really part of his debate with, with Douglas. I probably have to, don't have to say too much about this because the, the sub-treasury was like this democratic alternative to the national or the state bank, right? And and basically the heart of the argument is that it's, it's the same as a bank and it's not going to be as good as a bank, right? So he kind of argues, I mean, this is the interesting way you can kind of argue against these constitutionality cases and and this goes all the way back to i mean even uh, the the federalist republican debates of like jefferson's time is you know you got the people who say well the congress only gives power to what's exactly enumerated and then the, you have the other side saying well there's all these implied powers you know obviously but unless you really strictly only do what the constitution says you accept implied powers to some degree right so any even the strict constructionalists our constructionists argument kind of that jeffersonian idea you know they accept implied powers and and that's what lincoln kind of argues here is okay you say a bank a, a state bank's unconstitutional or a national bank's unconstitutional right well what about a sub-treasury system there's nothing about that in the constitution either and uh, that's the heart of his argument and then he talks about the utility of of the of the bank uh, and why the sub-treasury system wouldn't be better than what the bank does. It's, it's simply, it's a very Whiggish argument still. So again, it's, it's coming out of this American system and this idea of a, of a stronger uh, federal government that's going to invest in improvements, push industry, you know, going to have that kind of common market idea right? um, across, the, across the country. Um, so 1840, uh, yes, still in the legislature. Um, and... In, in Illinois, and he's supporting mostly internal improvements. That's a lot of what his legislation agenda is, or is trying to stop Democratic the Democratic Party from from putting an end to improvements. Uh, Harrison is elected, and of course, Harrison famously um, uh, dies in like a month after his inauguration or something because he gave that that long inauguration speech, and then you had a I think is that the first time I guess it's the first time a president died and was was, was you know, the vice president had to take over, and that would have been uh, Tyler. Um, so, yeah, that's 1840. I guess I don't have any documents I want to talk about for this uh, this year. As for 1841, um, he breaks up with Mary Todd. He tries to court her, and then that doesn't go too well, and he, he, gets, he enters one of his periods of melancholy, one of his periods of depression. I mean, I think there's a broad agreement now. Again, I'm not a psychi psychiatrist. It's hard for me to say too much about this, but I think there's general consensus that what Lincoln suffered throughout much of his life, this melancholy, was was a type of depression, uh, what we would now call depression, right? It's in this year he also formed a new legal partnership with a man named Stephen Logan to replace this, this Stewart guy who, who went off to, to serve in Congress. Um, now, one interesting thing here, and I'm, I'm not getting this from any documents are included here, but from the chronology that are included in the Library of America documents, and that is, he argues a kind of Dred Scott case, and there's a handful of cases that he argues that are Dred Scott-ish. And as if you probably know, the Dred Scott case, I think it's 1858, was a Supreme Court case about a, a, a man who brought one of his slaves to Wisconsin, and then he stayed there for a few years, and then this, this man said he's free, you know, I'm in a free state. So you can't bring your slave into a free state and they expect to 
still have it enslaved, right? There's parallels to this. You know, Jefferson had to pay Sally Hemings a wage when she was in Paris. Uh, now, she agreed to go back to him and remain enslaved, it seems. Well, we can't really know, but um, it, it, it seems she could have stayed in France if she wanted to. That's my understanding of that situation. But, uh, you know, in this case, he didn't want to. And so he sued for his freedom, saying, as soon as I was in the state of Wisconsin, which is a free state, the whole Northwest Territories, those five states of Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, all free, um, he was free. Um, of course, I went to the Supreme Court and that was tossed out. The Supreme Court said black people don't have a right to sue in court. They don't have rights, they're not citizens. Plus, they, they still would have lost the case even if they do. That, that's kind of what the decision said. But there's a couple cases that, that Lincoln is involved in kind of Dred Scott type decisions, which I found kind of interesting. One of these, actually, he's, he's sort of, he sides with the... Or he's, I don't know if he sides with, but he, he defends the master's claims. I mean, he's a lawyer, right? He, he does what he's paid to do. Um, but I'm just reading this from the uh, chronology, if I can find it. Okay, wins appeal before Illinois Supreme Court in case of Bailey v. Cromwell, successfully arguing that unpaid promissory note written by his client, David Bailey, for purchase of a slave was legally void in Illinois due to the prohibitions against slavery on the ordinance of 1787 and the state constitution. Now, I don't know if anyone got freed as a result of this case, but it was saying that that transaction, that sale could not have taken place in Illinois, right? Um, and there's going to be a couple, at least one more other, I think, of maybe more than one more that kind of deal with this issue. And it, can, it seems it must have come up a lot, right? In a, in a world where you have a growing market economy between sections, but you have different laws about whether you can own people. You know, and it's kind of like with, you know, even like with the problem of gay marriage, right? What happens when Massachusetts has had gay marriage, allowed it, and then, you know, those people move to to Wisconsin. Are they not married anymore? Doesn't Wisconsin have a duty to recognize that marriage? And I think this is one of the reasons the U.S. Supreme Court just decided to, to legalize it across the board. Right? Otherwise, it would cause all this kind of confusion in civil law. Um Anyways, what do we got here? Um, oh, there's one interesting letter in this section that talks about his views on slavery. It's a letter to a woman named uh, Mary Speed, which I, I presume is related to Joshua Speed, <laughs> uh, his, his good friend. And he writes this. Uh, we got on board the steamboat Lebanon at the docks of the canal around 12 o'clock. Uh, morning of the day we left and reached St. Louis the next morning by 8 p.m. Nothing of interest happened during the passage except... The vexatious delays occasioned by the sandbars we thought be thought interesting. By the way, a fine example was presented on the boat for contemplating the effects of condition upon human happiness. A gentleman had purchased 12 Negroes in different parts of Kentucky and was taking them to a farm in the south. They were chained six and six together. A small iron clevis was around the left wrist of each, and this fastened to the main chain by a shorter one at a convenient distance from the others, so that the Negroes were strung together precisely like so many fish upon a trot line. In this condition, they were being separated forever from the scenes of their childhood, their friends, their fathers, their mothers, their brothers and sisters, and many of them from their wives and children, and going into perpetual slavery where the lash of the master is proverbially more ruthless and unrelenting than any other wear. And yet amid all these distressing circumstances, as we would think them, they were the most cheerful and apparently happy creatures on board. One whose offenses for which he had been sold was an overfondness for his wife played the fiddle almost continually, and the others danced, snung, cracked jokes, and played various games with cards from day to day. 
How true it was that God tempers the winds of the shoreward land, or in other words, that he renders the worst of the human conditions tolerable while he permits the best to be nothing better than tolerable. A really great paragraph uh, showing his disgust at the domestic slave trade, but also um, his kind of window into his effort to try to understand how anyone could, could have happiness in that condition of servitude. Um, of course, as miserable as slavery is, you know, we imagine moments of happiness for for slaves, you know, whether it's in their family life or, or um, you know, community, community they built, right? And that's what his window. But I, I think what I get out of this is that, you know, Lincoln only sees kind of, he, his assumption is pity and misery only is, is the all, is the total extent of, of, of the slave's life. And um, obviously there's more to it, I think, more, more to their lives than that. I mean, if there's not, how could they have survived? I mean, it's, it's almost, at the very least, it's a survival strategy. Um, yeah, so 19, 1842, we're getting to kind of towards the end. I got a few more documents I want to mention, though. Um, you know, he writes a really fascinating letter to his friend Joshua Speed, really on melancholy. This is dated January 1842, where he kind of gives him advice on dealing with melancholy. It's like, I'm so experienced, and, and here's the kind of feelings you're going to feel. Um, Kind of a really fascinating document. Um, the first special cause is your exposure to bad weather on your journey, which my experience clearly proves to be very severe on defective nerves. The second is the absence of all business and conservation of friends. The third is the rapid and near approach of that crisis on which all your thoughts and feelings concentrate. End quote. And he's, he's giving him advice on how not to be depressed, which is, is kind of touching in a way. Um, all right. Um, the duel, 1842. We got to talk about the duel, um, as you probably know, or, or maybe not. But uh, it's it's something that's I think fairly well known about Lincoln is that he almost got into a duel when he was young. When he was well, he's not so young anymore. He's what around 30, um, 1842, 31. He almost got into a duel with a man named James Shield, who was a Democrat kind of state politician, like he was a state auditor or something, and. He wrote like some letters, just kind of, and then one's printed here. It's called the Rebecca letter, which is just kind of a satirical letter making fun of, 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 of Shield, right? It's kind of a offhanded kind of criticism. And apparently, Mary Todd wrote one too. There was like a series of these letters, and James Shield took it as a personal affront, not a political one. And it's interesting in the whole context of this duel is that there seemed to be a big distinction between insulting someone for political reasons and the personal insult. And Shield was saying these are personal insults, and Lincoln actually apologized, saying, I didn't mean anything personal by them, but he insisted on the duel and, and, and kind of said, find your second and meet me you know, at high noon tomorrow, kind of thing, choose your weapon. And, and Lincoln was going through with it, I think. But finally, you know, they, they kind of worked it out and Lincoln, Lincoln did a formal apology or whatever. But the documents about that duel are, are in this book too. Um, what else, 1842? Oh, the Temperance Society. Um, this, you know, Lincoln here is in the age of antebellum reform and the age of the Second Great Awakening. And he's not conventionally religious. He, he's, he's got his own views about religion, which I think we could talk about next time, um, where he actually writes someone about his views on religion. But here he comes off as a typical reformer, which, of course, the Whigs were kind of tied into those reform movements a little bit. 
So this is this document is the address to the Washington Temperance Society of Springfield, Illinois. So the Washingtonians, right? This, that was one of the famous uh, temperance groups that were active in America at the time. And uh, basically, this letter focuses on the reformability of man, which is, of course is a key Second Great Awakening reform era idea that society can be reformed, people can be reformed. The drunkard is not like doomed. He, he can be fixed, right? And that's key to it. And also the overall equality of all people. That's really key in this, this, this rather large address as well, in that like there's no moral difference between the drunkard and the sober man, right? It's just like a difference of, of, of actions that can be reformed. Quote, in my judgment, such as us have never fallen victims, have been spared more from the abuses of appetite than from any mental or moral superiority over those who have. Indeed, I believe if we take habitual drunkards as a class, their heads and their hearts will bear an advantageous comparison to those of any other class. There seems ever to be a pronist on the brilliant and warm-blooded to fall into vice. The demon of intemperance ever seems to have delighted in sucking the blood of genius and of generosity. What one of us could but call to mind some dear relative more promising in youth than all his fellows who has fallen a sacrifice to its rapacity, end quote. Now, of course, that's a, that's a warning not to fall victim to drunkenness, but it's also uh, an acknowledgement of, of, you know, that this can happen to anyone, right? It's not the best and brightest aren't necessarily immune from this. You know, I guess in modern language, we could say Lincoln here is saying this, this is a disease that needs to be, be treated, although that might be taking uh, a little too far. Um, but the heart of this is really the reformability of man. Um, now, it's also in 19, 1842 that he marries Mary Todd. So, um, so yeah, we got the, the Temperance Society speech and the, the duel. So in this collection, we have the Rebecca letter, which is the one that really offended Shields leading to the duel. And then the documents back and forth, the letters back and forth about arranging the, the duel. It seems they got really, really close to doing it. Um, so 1843, uh, Lincoln tries to run for Congress. He tries to get appointed to Congress, but, but fails. And he has his first, his first son is born, Robert Todd Lincoln. Um, not much documentary to, to comment on. And then 1844, he sets up his own law practice. And, and he's a Whig elector for the presidential run of, of Henry Clay. Uh, so once again, he's kind of entering into national politics as an elector. And one thing I, I think I learned reading these, and I'm, you know, I've been reading, I'm about halfway through the first volume now, is the times he served as an elector, he often was like a campaigning as well. So part of the job of the elector was to be someone on the stump, right? Because in these days, the, the candidate didn't like give stump speeches so much, not like in the 20th century. And, the, and now it was, it was kind of, you let other people do that for you, right? The, the campaign was, was run by others. And what, that was part of the job of these electors was to kind of rally up the local, local people, right? And, and so we got, we're gonna have examples of that in the next, next episode. Um, so I think that's it. I, I don't want to talk about any more documents. There's, there's a lot here to actually think about. Um, his views on temperance, his views on the bank, his, his politics as a Whig, his melancholy, his friendship with James, um, with Joshua Speed, not James Speed, Joshua Speed, uh, relationship with Mary Todd, his early political career, um, and all that. So a lot of, no, they're great. I, I really like these, these, these documents. It's, it's a little bit... He's not like, it's not like reading Jefferson and Tocqueville. I mean, 
those guys are just really great writers and and Lincoln's not he's so straightforward he's always gets right to business he's very he's kind of systematic when he gives speeches and 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 maybe it seems a little bit tedious to us but he's got these great moments too that really stand out to to the eye um, and those you know are going to be the things we remember about him right those really powerful moments in his in his speeches uh, we know he's best when he's at his tersest right Gettysburg Address the second inaugural these, these were not long speeches, but they're some of his most memorable. Um, he's still kind of working out that voice, I think, that political voice for him. Um, but it's these letter, these documents are all very practical. They're letters trying to accomplish goals. They're, they're answering correspondence. They're, um, in some cases, trying to save relationships. Um, there's not a whole lot of sentiment in these. And there's not a whole lot of analysis, really. It's it's these are documents that are that, that have a function, a very specific function, and often that function is is giving the party line, right, supporting the weak position on on an issue, and that may make some of these documents maybe not as, as fun to read as maybe when we jump into Jefferson, um, but but I think they're important to to look at to understand Lincoln. Um, so anyway, the next episode I will take another hundred pages or so, and I'm going to look at. The period from 1845 to 1848. So essentially, that's going to take us to his his time in Congress and his opposition to the Mexican War. Um, so that's that. Um, so if you're reading along, you can uh, read the documents from those years if you have the Library of America collection, um, or you know review his views on the Mexican War, his 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 feelings about that. Um, we got some other. Uh, issues here as well some interesting things about his um, you know his time as a lawyer and, and things but we'll just kind of push on through through Lincoln's career the plan then is to the in episode three we'll we'll focus on the Kansas Nebraska Act and episode four will get us to the Lincoln Douglas debates and then there's going to be three episodes we're going to spend three whole episodes on Lincoln Douglas debates because this collection uh, although it's the writings of Lincoln um, the second half of this first volume a little bit less than the second half, is the full Lincoln-Douglas debates, both sides. So, and they're long. I mean, it's, I didn't realize how long they were, actually. It's, it's like 300 pages or more. Some of that is associated documents, but mostly it's the, the speeches, um, both by Douglas and, and, and Lincoln. And, you know, they went back and forth and had rejoinders and things. So um we will we'll spend a lot of time on those uh, and that'll get us through the first volume and then we'll jump to the presidency in the second volume so anyways um as always thanks for listening thanks for um reading along with me if you have your own thoughts about abraham lincoln's writing his youth the duel his courtship his courtship efforts his melancholy whatever it is uh let me know below i'll leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com um as we do that i will um be putting together my thoughts about about um his early period in national politics in, in the house of representatives um so i'll have that episode up shortly uh next time so as always thanks for listening see you see you there see you when i get back